Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. One of the things, like, for example, I will say this, and again, go to my grave saying it. Jerry Seinfeld used to just, like, we'd be at the People's Choice Awards, and he'd drag us writers up on stage at the People's Choice Awards. And believe me, I think that's the last thing that the People's Choice Awards people wanted to see. They wanted Jerry, but believe me, they didn't want to see us, you know, 10 or 12 people. But goddamn, Jerry was just great about, about that thing. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am here. I am excited. This is fantastic. We're here with Dave Mandel. This is going to be a great podcast. He hasn't done that many. He's only done one other podcast in his life. And we're going to get to the heart of what the journey is all about. And from his humble beginnings to where he is now on a show that's probably one of the top 50 shows of all time, in my opinion. I wonder what his opinion is. I hope that's the same. So here goes. I'm going to give Dave not the long, drawn-out intro that I normally give people that puts them to sleep. I'm going to give him the concise intro, and I hope he likes it. I actually worked with him and his assistant for this bio because I knew that he'd bring some humor to it because when I do the bio, I normally have absolutely no sense of humor at all. So here goes. Dave Mandel is the showrunner and executive producer of Veep. What a show. He has been a multi-Emmy-nominated and multi-Emmy-losing writer for such shows as Saturday Night Live from 92 to 95, Seinfeld, where he wrote The Bizarro Jerry, a.k.a. Manhands Show, and The Betrayal, the backwards episode with Peter Melman. Curb Your Enthusiasm, and even an episode of The Simpsons, which was the Treehouse of Horror 23 episode with Brian Kelly. Additionally, he wrote Clerks, the cartoon, which got no Emmy nominations. He is the co-writer of such films as Eurotrip. Oh, is there anything funnier? The Dictator, and if you press him on it and give him two Diet Cokes, he'll tell you the cat in the hat. His directing credits include Veep, Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Comedians, great show, I love that, and Eurotrip, uncredited in parentheses. 
He is an avid collector of original comic book art and Star Wars memorabilia, if you have any to sell him. But one thing he won't be selling is the Writers Guild Award he won for writing the infamous Pool Guy episode on Seinfeld. Actually, I would sell that because uh, I got that award like the year before they changed the award. So the one they gave me looks like I won a bowling contest somewhere in the Midwest. (laughs) And then they changed it to this very elaborate like wings flying, like something that really looks like an award. So my Writers Guild Award literally looks like I made it for myself. And then they've now changed it to this thing. And they're like, well, you can get one of those if you want. It's like, I know, but it's weird because the picture is me holding this just horrific. I mean, it is the most, only the Writers Guild, the most sort of self-hating group on earth would make the the, the worst award thing you've ever seen in your life. I mean, honestly, like if you were in a mall, you could do a better job than what I I won. But anyway, nothing we can do about that now. So, sorry. (laughs) Oh, that's all good. Please welcome my guest today, Dave Mandel. This is awesome. I feel so good inside. I don't know what it is. I don't even want to ask a question. It's so wonderful. <laughs> we could just sit in silence. I think the audience would really enjoy that. <laughs> We've never done that before. Just sit admiring each other. <laughs> well, I'll be admiring you. You won't be admiring me, I'm sure. One person I talked to, it was like, I didn't know what to say. Like I was interviewing them. They said they listened to the show. I said, oh, I'm so flattered you listened to the show. She said, well, I listened to it at one and a half speed. <laughs> I said, because you're so slow and drawn out, I have to get past you to the other person. <laughs> but I want to talk to you about a few different things because we talked about so many different parts of the navigation. When's the last time you actually went home, sat on the couch, and said to yourself, God, I was a real asshole today? It was probably more recent than I'd like to admit. You know, we started shoot. I, I started working on Veep. Uh, we're in we're we're early June right now, and they sort of approached me with the fact that Armando Iannucci was leaving the show like last February, so a year ago, February. And I started talking to Julia and HBO about and Armando the created sh- the show. He was the creator and did the show for the first four years. Now, this is what's odd about it. Normally, in a television show, when you get somebody like Julia Louis Dreyfus. You write and create the show with that person. So when I saw the show originally and I saw that she was the star of it and I saw that he created it alone, normally a star does not go into a vehicle where they don't have a hand in writing and creating it. It's very, very rare that a comedic star will do that. It's not rare for a dramatic star to do that. You wouldn't think that David Caruso is creating CSI. But in comedy, if you look at all the great comedies, except for a select few like Home Improvement and Roseanne, where Matt Williams sort of took those stand-up, took those backs, stand-up yeah. things and said it was based on the stand-up of, and they really didn't negotiate hard to get it. Ray Romano didn't get it on Everybody Loves Raymond, but Phil would even acknowledge that they created together. It just didn't happen that way, the way it was negotiated. But normally now... That's the way it always happens. So do you know how that came I mean, about? I think, I think the sort of the unique situation, and you're right, it is rare. And I'm sure at the time, and again, I don't want to put words in her mouth. I'm sure at the time, you know, Julia as a free agent was probably being offered a million things. I think it, in this case, part of, the, part of how it probably occurred, if I had to guess, was that 
you know, Armando had sort of done sort of his version of this back in, uh, in the UK, they had done the show, uh, not it's obviously wasn't vice president, but with uh, Peter Capaldi and it was sort of about, you know, the, I guess he was the spin doctor of sort of the opposition party. So it was sort of a veep like political show. And so I think the fact that sort of HBO was sort of bringing it not exactly over, he had done the movie, uh, in the loop, I think it was called, which was at the Pentagon. And then they were kind of trying to do, I think, a Pentagon show. And at some point realized that vice president would be the ultimate, like sort of least powerful job. So I think because he was, they were, he was sort of bringing a lot of that good sort of like, not baggage, it's not the, really the right word, but he kind of, there was a, there was a sort of a power behind it that he kind of created this thing. And then I think for him, and again, I wasn't there for any of it. He had this really incredible part, and I think it was a mutual recognition. So, of you know, Julia for the part, and him for Julia. And again, I wasn't there for any of it, but I do assume in this case it was because it was sort of he had a past with the concept, at least. But you're right, very rare. Got it. And so I interrupted you were no, talking no, 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 about no. the asshole thing. Well, oh yeah. So, um, so anyway, so I've been working on this show now. So I, I sort of once it was announced that. Armando was leaving. I had had no pre, I wouldn't be as incredibly always as trying to be clear about this. I had no involvement other than being a fan of Veep. I watched the show on Sunday nights with my wife, but I had nothing to do with it. I didn't work there. I didn't do anything. Um, but when he decided to leave, they came, they came to me, which was obviously very nice. And once I decided to do it, started talking about it and really started like, you know, working on it officially, like in May of last year. So at this point, you know, it's been, it's been over a year and I, 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 sounds silly. I'm, I'm exhausted. I, I'm, 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 I'm fried. I reach the end of the day and I can't make a decision. Uh, my mother is visiting right now. My little guy is about to graduate from kindergarten. And I don't know, she tried to ask me something about like when to serve the dinner last night or something. And it was just literally like, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I've looked at so many graphics today on the last two episodes of Veep. I can't answer questions. I'm unable to answer questions. So I have been at that point for about two months. And, I, you know, there was like sort of a point like about, a, I don't know, a week or two ago where I, I think I just was snapping. I was sitting on the editor with one of my editors working on uh, on like the last episode. And I was just snapping at his inability to read my mind. Do you know what I mean? Which is impossible, of course. No one can read anybody's mind. But it was sort of like... I was giving half-assed explanations of the edit I wanted, and then he kind of did it wrong, and I was just just annoyed. And and then and, you know, when you get home, and you go, "He's such a good editor," and he's so. And then the 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 episode, um, which is the ninth episode, we were slight, we were out of order, um, but it's this. I, I don't want to ruin anything, but uh, it, it's this interesting kind of structured episode, and so it was it was a credit to him as the editor as much as anything, and. Again, I was just like, I, I just, I know I was at my wits end and it was just sort of like, you kind of think to yourself, all right, I'm going to go in tomorrow and make sure I sort of just let him know what a good job he's doing. Cause I was just being a cocksucker. I don't know. You know, and it just, just snappy. You know what I mean? It was just like, and when you walk yeah. in there first thing the next morning, <laughs> tell our audience how you clean things up. You know, you, you, you know, it's, you start with your small talk, how you doing and all that kind of stuff. You start rolling and then, you know, it's that sort of like, you know, all of a sudden you, you feel like you're in third grade again and it's like, oh, that looks real. You know, you sort of try and compliment something and then kind of go, hey, you know, if I haven't said it, I just want you to know how good this is and that kind of stuff. And the other thing that I try and do is, 
you know, if, if someone's seen a cut that night, for example, to let him know, hey, you know, Julia saw it and she just loved it. I just wanted you to know that and stuff like that. You know, and again, you're trying, you don't want to be heavy handed, you know, and I don't think he took it. And that's the good thing. We've worked together. He was uh, an editor on Curb Your Enthusiasm as well. Actually, a really wonderful editor and a filmmaker in his own right, a guy named Roger Nygaard. Um, and I was just snappy. I mean, there's no, you know what I mean? But I don't think he didn't take it personally and we got, you know what I mean? But it just, it just was, it was just, it's been a long year. Uh, how else can you put it? But I knew it and he knew it. Do you know what I mean? Now tell me the last time you remember when the roles were reversed and somebody was an asshole to you and how did they clean it up or did they never clean it up? Uh, the one that comes to mind yeah, never cleaned it up. Never I, find, I find most people don't clean it up. I mean, that's my own experience, unfortunately, is that, uh, I mean, I had a, I mean, this is not the one I was thinking of, but years ago when I, uh, when Seinfeld ended, and I don't mean this to sound egotistical, but the various production companies and networks, which at that point, the laws had just changed, you know, it was that, that, uh, Sin Fine or Sign Fin or however yeah, they, whatever yeah. it was, which meant that the networks for the first time were allowed to be their own production companies. That's Previous right. to that, production companies made shows, networks aired them, and it was church and state, completely separate. That's right. And Castle Rock was the right. production company of record for Seinfeld. Exactly. And the reason was, as the story goes, Jerry was under a deal at NBC and they didn't even care if he did anything. They were just holding him so that he didn't host another show- on another network. Jerry was under a late night deal. One of the head guys from late night, Rick yeah. Ludwin put him under a deal. It was a very unusual deal. And Seinfeld, as many people might know, got the smallest order in history. I think it was four yeah, it was episodes. four episodes, but it was because Jerry wanted to do a show. They didn't really, I mean, they were just happy to have him locked in and not hosting a Tonight Show rival, I think, on CBS. So Jerry wanted to make the show. And they basically said to him, you have to go find a production company. We need someone to make it. And he said, who? And they said, go to Castle Rock. I mean, again, this is my understanding of the story. Um, because NBC could not own their own show. That all changed right around 1998. I would sort of argue it's part of what ruined television or certainly a lot of comedy on television. We can talk about that if you want also. Because, of course, once you can be your own production company, why would you ever buy from any other production company? It hurt drama a little bit. I think it really hurt comedy because I think it just – it was the end of the big production companies like Castle Rock. They either had to get bought up by other people or whatnot. Um, but anyway – Long story short, when Seinfeld ended, all of the the different Seinfeld writers were, we were kind of headhunted a little bit. We all signed development deals with the various different companies. And, you know, at the time we were Seinfeld. And so people- There was they, a bidding war yes, for you, my friend. Of, yes, they, were, they came at us and it was good. It, it was, was a big good bidding stuff. war yeah. for you. So it was nice. It was very nice. So we all went to these various places and I went to, uh, I signed with- uh, Touchstone Television, which was run by at the Dean time a guy Valentine. named Dean Valentine, um, and a good another good friend of mine was working there, a guy named Pete Aronson. Of course, and um, so I signed there, and I was really excited. And I signed there. I don't know. Let's say it was in February, and I was a, the show ended in May, and in June I was away on a little vacation, and I get like I don't remember. It wasn't an email because I don't think I was checking email, but it, all of a sudden I get like a phone call or something, and it's like. 
Dean Valentine's leaving to go to UPN and soon Pete was out and it was just a whole, it just like the people I thought I was going to work for, it all changed. Um, anyway, I did some shows at ABC. One of them was the, the clerk show and whatever. And when it came to the clerks thing, when we, when Kevin and I sold it to ABC, they were in dead last place while it was being animated in Korea. Um, they create, they had who wants to be a millionaire and they became first place. And guess what? They no longer were interested in clerks. So the Super Bowl that year, we had an ad for clerks on the Super Bowl and then they proceeded to just dump us to a June launch, like a mid June launch. And they aired like three episodes and that was it, I think, or whatever. And so now cut to a, I don't remember, like a, probably a year later, uh, I'm going with Peter Melman, uh, the Seinfeld writer Peter Melman. We, uh, we were going to the Palm to have dinner. I walk into the Palm and there is one of the, uh, the ABC executives. Uh, uh, and she's, I see, as I walk in, I see who it is and she's talking to Melman who I don't think necessarily was, he, I shouldn't say he was not doing it on purpose. So he had done work at, at ABC as well. Um, and I walked over and she was so very thrilled to see me and, Hey, how are you? And I have no interest in, Hey, how are you? When you fucking, they did this thing to me when they canceled, when they canceled clerks, I read about it in Variety. They didn't call me. And when I said, why didn't you call me? They claimed that they called my office at 8 p.m. or something, and I wasn't there. If you wanted to get a hold of me, you can fucking get a hold of me. And they treated me like dog shit and then had the nerve, like a dog who doesn't know when he takes a shit on your rug, to be very happy to see you and go, hi, how are you? And I just didn't say a word. I just fucking stared. I just, I have no interest in any of this. Uh, and Peter was really enjoyed that. He bought me dinner. He said that was one of the better things he'd ever seen. But uh, I just, these people who don't take responsibility for their actions, I, I just have no patience for it anyway. Well, how do you have patience for this business then? I'm not sure. Sometimes I don't. I mean, it's funny. Uh, you know, the, the best you can do is, and, and, and Veep speaks to this, is I, I got very lucky enough to sort of get invited into this situation. Lucky. Uh, there were, there are many choices in the world. Lucky. Could have, all right. Fine. Do you think if you hadn't worked with Julia on Seinfeld, you would have been called into that office to work? On you know, the show? and this is not to take anything away from Julia, who obviously we did have that relationship. This isn't no, an no. indictment of your talent, but I mean, no, to no. just make her feel comfortable. That was a big part of it. I think it also had a lot to do with, um, the curb work that I had done curb enthusiasm at HBO. Um, they, they had had, uh, the Mike judge show, uh, the Silicon Valley and Alec Berg, who was one of my writing partners kind of went in there and helped with that show, uh, like after the pilot was done, but before the show started. So I think when this happened, I think, uh, Casey Bloys at HBO was kind of like, well, who's the next, who's the next curve guy on the bench? So, Okay, not lucky. I think I'm actually really good at what I do. There you go. You want me to say that? I do think I'm really good at what I do. What I was going to say, though, is the lucky part is that the show, Veep, is this sort of really interesting sort of, and HBO is really great about being very sort of supportive, but in the core of it, it is a non-asshole show. That, that's where I was getting to. So you try and find, you know, you said, well, how do you survive this industry? Well, you find your little islands of non-asshole. And it does start with Julia at the top, which is to say she wouldn't put up with an asshole. If you're an asshole, you're not going to be on that show. And so it is, it's obviously I put the writing staff together, but the cast, a lot of the crew and whatnot, 
it is a non-asshole region and it, it, it allows you to be in this business. That's, that's, that was sort of the point that you, that you have to work hard to carve out these areas of non-asshole because you're right. The, the business of it will, will just, just wear you down, I guess. Now, one of the hardest things for a showrunner coming in, a new guy coming in, and it's the same in any job you're in out there in the world who's listening to this. One boss goes out, a new boss comes in, and people are on eggshells. Even Very if they so, have yeah. a contract, they're on eggshells because they know that this guy is not going to come in there and keep everybody. It's never going to happen. He has his list of people that he wants to work with. I don't care if you're at the law firm or the 7-Eleven. There's people everybody wants to work with. They're on their list and they work with them everywhere if they're available. So when Dave goes into Veep, he has a list of people that he would love the opportunity to work with on the show. Now, granted, he's not going to hire anybody without Julia's permission or the network's permission, but they trust him. And there's a finite number of staff and budget for right. the people Spots, on yeah. the staff. And there's contracts that might be some that are as little as 13 weeks left. There might be some that are two years that are guaranteed, whatever. Nothing more than that on that kind of show. And so he comes in and the first thing he's got to do is meet with everybody and make everybody feel comfortable because he can't meet with some people and make them feel comfortable. And even if he knows he's going to let go one of the other people, he still has to meet with them and say, hey, man, I just want you to know I'm judging everybody equally and I have to figure out what I'm doing here and I don't want anybody to walk on eggshells. And so how do you navigate that going in as a new person, sure. knowing that there's people who are uncomfortable? Because I imagine you can't take, let's say I'm a guy who's on the writing staff and we're friends and you can't come up to me and say, Psst, Hey, Barry, I just want you to know you're safe <laughs> because no matter how much you trust your best friend, there's a chance your best friend could have a beer somewhere and spill the beans. Well, the one thing that sort of, and again, the, there were unique elements to it all, which was the show shot in Baltimore with an entire British writing staff that was a lot of guys that had worked for many years with Armando. Some of them were people he had elevated up the level. Some of them had started even as his assistants and stuff. So it was an all British staff and I guess to some extent very Armando centric with all British directors, some of which whom were people who worked on the show. At the same time that he, he was leaving the Baltimore tax credits were ending for the shooting and the LA instituted some tax credits here. So we were able to get the LA tax credits and move the show to LA. When we moved the show to LA, all of a sudden, not, I, I know this is beyond the writing staff, this is everything, but all of a sudden, and I think this actually worked to my advantage, all of a sudden I wasn't the only new guy because we were moving the show to LA it meant new crew, a lot of new crew people and whatever. And that, and, and I think that helped a little bit that I wasn't the only new guy. Because I think they, it was a very insular world there in a good way. They were all just working a lot in Baltimore. And had I joined it, it would have been a lot of people, even like, you know, the, the, the crew guys, the best boys and whatnot, who like had just been there longer than me. And so when we moved it to L.A., it helped. 
that we had a new prop person and a new this and a new that. So that was a nice thing. In terms of the writing, a bunch of the writers went off with Armando. They just were, they were moving on with him to his next project. There were a couple that were interested in sticking around. And I basically, and this was true of not just the writers. I know you were talking about writers, but it was with the cast too. I kind of went on a little bit of a goodwill tour. I tried to sit down and have like a bite. Like I had a lot of breakfasts and whatnot with uh, cast members just to meet them and say, hey, or grab a cup of coffee or something. Julia had a little thing at her house where I got to meet a bunch of them because I didn't know any of them. So again, it's just a little bit of saying hello, if nothing else, which felt really good to do. And then honestly, I got myself on a plane to London and it was a two-part thing. One was to meet a couple of these writers that were interested in coming back who I didn't know and wanted to talk to them. Number two was uh, one of the guys who had been uh, a director of the show to talk to him about possibly coming back and directing some episodes to give some continuity to the direction. And by the way, also to sit down with Armando and his guys, we had talked on the phone, we'd exchanged a couple of nice emails, but just to sit down with him, because honestly, at the end of the day, he asked me to, he said, Hey, if you get a chance, come on over here. And I don't think he would have been upset if I had said, look, man, I've got a million things to do, but he created the show. It made all the sense in the world for me to get my ass on a plane and and go and do it. And then coming back through New York, it made sense for me to stop and sit down and say hi to Anna Klumsky, who I had yet to meet because she's East Coast. And it sounds like, again, I don't necessarily think the season was good because I got on a plane and had coffee with Anna, but you know, you do want to put these people at ease. They, you know, they've been working with this guy for four years. You do want to sort of sit and be able to go, I just want to talk to you. This is some of what I'm thinking. Tell me what you're thinking. Um, I think my, some of my credits helped. I think they at least felt like they didn't find me on a street in a good way. But again, I can't say to you that we had coffee and then became best friends and, you know, went shopping together. But I think it just, it, it sort of, you know, you want that, at least it allowed the icebreaker to be earlier and then the relationship could start. And so it just made sense to do it, get myself in front of these people and say hi and be honest and go, this is what I'm thinking. This is some of the stuff I'm still trying to figure out. What do you like? I remember sitting early on with uh, Sarah Sutherland, who plays uh, uh, Catherine, the president, uh, Selena's daughter. And, you know, it was one of those funny things where we talked a lot about what we, uh, what we were, you know, the, the season that you're now seeing. I had talked to her about the fact that her grandmother was going to die and she was going to sort of come out of the closet and have this relationship with the Secret Service, you know, just a lot of stuff. And she was very excited about those stories. And sort of at the end of it, I said, and what's on your mind? And she just said, I just think every now and then that as sort of horrible as a character as Catherine is and sort of a bit of a wallflower, she just said, some of the outfits occasionally make me feel like I'm like a retarded child. You know what I mean? Like, like there are certain outfits that are funny because she's dowdy and not stylish. And she goes, and every now and then there's some that push it. And it was just the easiest thing in the world to go, great, noted, let's get you, let's have a little chat with the costume person, let's get this, whatever. But, I, I, and again, I never said to her, was that good that we did that? But by making her comfortable enough to go, this is, some, this is a little thing that bothers me and being able to just kind of go, hey, let's now all talk about it together. I don't know, you're a step or two ahead, at least I like to think. So, I mean, that was sort of my thing for going on because it's certainly with the cast, I was the new guy. With the writers, I met these Brits, um, we, a bunch of us, we did hit it off. And then, yeah, I went and I hired a bunch of people that I wanted to hire. But I'll tell you what, that's awful too. I hired a lot of people I knew well. And 
I think a lot of things went really well for us this year. I'm really happy with the show. I'm not quite sure we fully gelled ever as a writing apparatus. And there are some people I really like that aren't coming back this year, just sort of in a mutual sort of, it wasn't the best fit. And that was hard too, because it's like, do they see that it's not working? And there are people you know, whereas at least with strangers, it's kind of easier just to go, I don't know you, this isn't working out. So hiring friends and or those people on your list, there's a bit of a double-edged sword to that as well. That was a very long answer. No, it's great. <laughs> hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. So the first time you made the call that you were going to not renew somebody or let somebody go. Well, I don't go. do it with a call. I will tell you again, uh, and this is my own thing. I let everybody know in person. I don't say to them, come in. I didn't say, come on in. I need to talk to you about not you not coming back. But I said, come on in. I want to talk. And I don't know. You know, again, I, I don't necessarily... I think one's, one guy suspected it. One person was maybe a little blindsided. But again, I can only speak for myself. That's just not something I want HBO doing or an agent doing or something. I'm going to look, I'm going to talk to you and tell you why I don't think it was working. And you can argue with me, you can get upset, whatever, but I'm going to do it myself. I, I just, it's miserable, but I'm going to do it myself. I owe you that. I owe you the respect. And also, even if it didn't perfectly work out, you worked hard for me for a year and I oh, you, you, you deserve me telling you personally, whether even if it's not news you want. Tell our audience a time in your career where you took one of those meetings and the person in front of you talked you out of it to give him another chance or her another chance. Never happened. It's never happened. Never happened. I don't make these decisions lightly. I mean, by the way, I haven't been in that many positions, you know, even like on Curb where Jeff, Alec and I are working, we're working with Larry. It's not like there was a staff and it's not like I'm working, you know, we were quote unquote the showrunners with Larry, but it, the show was the four of us. You know what I mean? So I ha even on some of my things, there haven't been like large staffs where this has come up that much, I will tell you. So this was actually... Uh, this is, it's been a while since I'd had to fire anybody, I guess. <laughs> and fire is not the right word, you know, to just sort of a mutual parting, as they say. But yeah. Are you the kind of guy who will sit down with somebody and say, look, I just want to let you know, up to this point, this is your sixth week. You got seven left. At this point in time, if I were going to make a decision, I wouldn't bring you back. But. I think that there's some things that you could do if you could just do this, 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 right. this, and this. 
then after the next seven weeks, I think there's a chance you could turn this right. thing around. Or are you the kind of guy who doesn't do that? I would like to be that guy. I will admit, and again, I, I hope this doesn't sound like bitching because I loved every second of it, but Veep filled my days. We were doing a lot of long shoot days on the five days a week, and then we were writing on the weekends. So there were a lot of long 15, 16 hour days and then working on the weekends. And if I had to critique myself, and by the way, this is some of the stuff I did say to the various people, I, 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 there were things that I wish I could have nipped in the bud. There were things where I wish I had been able to be more hands-on talking to the indiv individual writers. There was a lot more where I just ended up just kind of taking it and either doing it myself or doing it with my number two or something like that, just because it had to get done. However, I guess to your point, with the new season, like talking to some of the writers that I'm bringing back, I did sit and talk with writers that I'm bringing back and say to them sort of like, look, you're coming back, but here's some stuff I want you to think about that. Here's where I thought you excelled. Here's the good things. Here's the reasons you're coming back. But here's the stuff that A, drove me crazy just in a, like, drives me crazy. But B, also, I just think you need to work on um, in terms of, you know, uh, hey, you know, it just seems like you 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 just you you disappear. You you know you get sort of shy, and I don't care. Give me a bad idea, give me a good idea. I don't care. But you've got to keep talking. You've got to keep pitching. Don't talk for talk's sake. But you have to find a way to be sort of more emboldened. You know when we're looking for stuff. So that was an example of something I said to someone, which I'm hoping. I see talent there, and so I'm hoping that is a good thing. And you're right. I wish I could have done that midway through with a lot of different people just to sort of say, this is what's working, this is what's not. But it was all I could do to grab onto the reins and keep the show moving. So ideally, yes, but not not in practice. One yeah. of the things I really appreciate that I really respond to myself, I've been executive producer of tons of shows, sure. but never been a creative executive right. producer like you where you're gutting it out in the writer's room. But one of the things that I really respond well to is when somebody comes up to me and says, listen, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah, what's up? Listen, I just want you to know that I really want to do so well here and I want to do so well for it. And I was wondering if you could just let me know what are the things that I'm doing great and tell me the things that I can do that can get me past things to the highest level in your eyes. I respond to that. Do you sure. respond to that when people I come up to you? I certainly would. And, and again, it, you know, there were occasional times where I was able to say, look, I think these are like, for example, we do a lot of like, once the script is kind of in form, we do a lot of, we'll, we'll identify an area and go, this is some, a place where we, we're looking for like some alt pitches, that kind of a thing. And you get a list of, you know, you get some jokes. And a lot of times, sometimes it's all just anonymous. Like I'm just being handed stuff by like a writer's assistant. And I'm looking through a long list and going, this one, this one, this one, that one, whatever. And sometimes I'm getting an email from somebody and I know who it is. And I could say, like, there's a certain tone and a kind of joke we do on Veep. And there's a certain kind of joke that is a jokey joke that is a great joke and certainly would have worked on a Seinfeld or even a Curb Your Enthusiasm, but isn't Veep. It's almost like either whether it's a joke on a joke or a joke about structure, just not the kind of joke we do on Veep, um, which is a little more grounded, I guess, in some sort of fake reality, you know, um, where I'm able to go, look, this is why these are not working. They're, they're, they're jokes on jokes or whatever, and we need more of this. So there are times, and I definitely do respond. Like I said, 
I had dreams of like, you know, I, I, you know, I was lucky enough to be mentored early in my career. I have dreams of working with young writers. I just found that like last year during the season of Veep, you know, I, I just, it was just all we could do was get the show made. And so the notion of spending time mentoring just sort of went out the window. It just did. How would Dave Mandel, if Dave Mandel was running the show, review Dave Mandel? What are your strengths and what would somebody say, hey, pal, you are amazing at this, 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 and this, but this, you need improvement right. here, 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 and here. Have you ever self-evaluated yourself? Yeah, you know, you, especially when you're, again, in this situation where, you know, there's a giant team of people sort of depending on you. Um, I mean, my strengths lie in the stuff that I think I've always been good at, which is, you know, st structure, story, character jokes coming out of structure and story. But it is structure, structure, structure. And I will, I am the first to say, I, I learned that at, uh, at sort of Larry's knee. Larry, for Larry and Jerry, it was always structure. Curb is all structure. It's so much structure. We don't even have scripts because we have structure. We don't need, you know, we have, you know, these sort of outlines to improv off of, but we always have that tight structure of what makes a curb a curb. And so, um, you know, I think when I look to what I brought into Veep, I think I brought a little of that there that maybe whether you, I don't, in my mind, it's what I like, so it's what I brought more of to the show. Whether you felt it needed it or not, that's up to the individual viewer. But I think that's something I brought to it. Um, in this season, in particular, it was a very—it was very ten, very intricately connected episodes. With we're sort of solving this story of her tie. It was very tied in, and there were probably times where I guess I was probably the only one that had it in my head, and perhaps on the criticism side, didn't do a great job of sort of letting people know why and what it needed to be because I had it up here. And so when they're trying to outline something or write something and I'm not able to sort of share it with them, I'm sure it's frustrating. And again, I think that goes back to, as I said, I wasn't really able to give a lot of feedback. At a certain point, I kind of ended up just grabbing it from people and either setting uh, uh, Lou Morton, who is my wonderful number two on it, or me just sort of, or him working, or me working, or us working together, or, all right, now we're going to do these scenes, and people would go off and do the scenes, and the scenes would come back, and then I would go, no, 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 do it more like this, this, and this, which at some point, you know, should I have done a better job explaining what I wanted, but at the same time, you want people to give it their own thing, but again, it was that weird thing of like, and I, and I said this before with the editor story of like, I can't make people read my mind, but sometimes it was sort of like, that's what I wanted. And that, that, that's a hard thing. And I think it's, uh, it's probably what a lot of showrunners go through. Um, that's where I just wasn't great. Um, uh, you know, beyond that, I'm a bit of a procrastinator by nature. Um, you know, why put up, why do today what you can do the <laughs> night before, and, you know, I think that's certainly, uh, and obviously with a, with a show where you're shooting, obviously you're gonna, you can't, you can't, when I, I don't, you know, I don't want to delay shooting. I don't want to do anything like that. But, you know, if you give me, you know, two months, you'll have a script. And if you give me a month, you'll have a script. And if you give me a week, you'll have a script. You know what I mean? But it's, if you give me three months, you're not necessarily going to get five scripts. And I would like to get better at that. I want to try, as I look to this season of, I just want to, you know, last season, there was a lot of like, 
getting to know you with the writers, even though we knew each other, but the, a lot of them were new to the show and talking about what the show could be and how we solved this thing. And I, and I definitely just want to hit the ground running because the wheels kind of came off around episode four and then we were just kind of hand to mouth with the scripts, you know, just kind of working, you know, a day or two ahead of what we needed. And I, and obviously it would be wonderful on Curb, it, a different structure, but we would write all 10 or write all 10 outlines and then initiate production. And I don't believe we'll ever get that far along, but boy, it would be great if we went into production with six or seven DC, like scripts done. That would be exciting. And I think that is a weakness of mine that I'm working on. So there, there's, there's some analysis for you. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. I remember I interviewed Don Rio, who created My Wife and Kids and so many other uh -huh. things, work with Gleason. And I interviewed him and I said, so is the summer's going to be busy for you, right? You got to get going writing those scripts. Uh, I'm, I'm going to Hawaii, <laughs> going to Hana. I'm like, what do you mean you're going to Hana? You got to go into production. I wrote them all already, Barry. Wow. What do you mean you wrote them all? Yeah, I wrote 25 scripts already. It's all done. I said, well, how is that possible? Well, I just take a couple of days, write each one. Then I give them to the writing teams and let them work on them. And when I come back, I'll be all set. But I, wow. <laughs> I'm like, that's ridiculous. How do you do that? He said, just, it's the way I've always done it. So that was kind of crazy. Yeah. I never heard of anybody doing that before. <laughs> is he available? Can I hire him? But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's working on two and a half man. He's the executive producer there. So how do you maintain a great personal relationship as a showrunner, executive producer? How do you balance work and your wife and your relationship there and your child and how does somebody who it's, works so hard in a job that's so demanding not go through a divorce every second? Um, I guess the real answer is I don't know. This was the first time that I sort of had a like all-consuming job where my kids were sort of old enough to be aware of it. Do you know what I mean? Like the last time, like where I, when I went off to do The Dictator, which was a couple of years ago, they were still just young enough that they, I don't want to say they didn't quite understand that they knew where I was. They knew I was like in New York and that kind of thing. And they were going to come visit or I was coming back on weekends, but I don't think they could, you know, I think when you're that young time doesn't mean quite as much. And I don't think they were aware of it as much. Um, one of the reasons I was excited to move the show back to LA was I live in LA. We were shooting at Paramount 15 minutes from my house. But the truth is we could have been in Baltimore. I could have been in, I could have been in China. I, I didn't see my children. They would sometimes, you know, nudge me in the morning at 7am if I had a late call and just say hello. And I'd go hello and give them a kiss. And then I'd come home at night and they were already long asleep and I'd go look at them sleeping. Um, the weekend soon disappeared. And I will honestly say by January, the kids were kind of in open re revolt. My, my, my daughter, who's eight, was kind of giving me the, uh, you know, you can't tell me to do that. You're never here. That, 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 that was lovely uh, with, a, with a good eye roll. And my little guy, who's younger, was giving me sort of the, uh, why do you have to go to work, daddy thing, which was heartbreaking. Um, by February, my wife was sort of starting to get into open revolt, just of the just the seven days a week she was parenting, you know, alone to some extent. Um, and I don't have an answer. Again, I'm trying to sort of, I feel like if we can get ahead with the writing, we can, uh, maybe some of those weekends can go away. That was really the problem. 
We're doing things production-wise. You know, we are, you know, I've sat down and spent a lot of, you know, not a huge amount of time, but we have had good conversations with uh, my producer, Morgan Sackett, with Julia, with Frank Rich, where we've sort of tried to talk about what worked, what didn't work. One of the things we're trying to do this season is go from a five-day schedule to a six-day schedule with the idea that we won't go quite as late on any given time so that more days, hopefully, then things can get done in the evening or, you know, we might get done at decent hours where I could do a little writing. But when you get home after an 18-hour day, you don't want to sit down and write and try and get some of those Saturdays and Sundays back. So it's all a process. There was a whole other thing at Paramount where they have what they call the editing building, which is this horrible building over these workshops with these windowless editing offices that are just horrific. And they make everybody edit there because they couldn't rent the space out. It's the only way they can monetize the space. Um, I got to get our edit room closer where my actual office is because one that ended up happening was I didn't really get a chance to edit till Christmas. And then again, when we finally finished, as opposed to had the edit room been next door or downstairs the way it has been on every other show I've ever worked on. Hey, I'm going to go run in and look at something for 20 minutes. I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit there. I couldn't do that. So even the editing just became a, a, a to do to some extent. Here's a yeah. weird question for you. I know this has been done before sure. and the way editing works these days, it's not as all encompassing sure. a place where you have to edit. Have you ever thought of asking to move the editing bay in the guest house or the garage of your house. I haven't gone that far yet. If I can get it just into where, where my office is, I feel like that would be something. Um, but I know, I know, you know, I know what you're saying, but at the same time, you know, if I'm home, like when I tried to like work at home on a Saturday with the kids home, you know, I'd write seven lines and then I'd pull it, you know, and you just get pulled away. Um, I was talking with uh, Alec Berg, one of my former writing partners, uh, or once and future writing partner, whatever you want to call him. Um, and he's told me something interesting that Mike Schur, who run, who uh, did uh, Parks and Rec and a bunch of other shows, told him, which was fascinating. And he, what he said was, and I'm, I'm quoting, was that there are three phases to a show. There's sort of the, the writing, the onset, and the editing. And Mike's theory in life was that the only way you could have sort of a normal life and see your kids and whatnot is if you give up one of the three, if you can figure out a way to give up one of the three. Um, and what Alec, I know, did this year or this last season was he was writing and he edited and he was obviously there for run-throughs and stuff, but he wasn't day-to-day -day on the set. For the moment, I don't know how to give up one of them. He also has the benefit of he and Mike Judge work together, so there's the sort of his co-creator, if you will. I, I I love my guys, I love everybody, but at the end of the day, I was on set for every shot, and I feel like I need to be there. I was I've done all the editing. I've brought people in to help me to look at things, whatever, and I appreciate. It. But I have been there. I've never been able to just go, you do that show and then I'll look at it. What happens when somebody else cuts a show is I end up having to go back in, look at the, the, the editor's cut and see everything because we shoot long as a lot of shows do. You know, we shoot, we had a lot of shows in sort of the 40 plus minute, 45 minute, and we got to get them down to 28 minutes. And a lot of people's instinct in editing is always to cut a scene, to give yourself like a two minute chunk. And I am a big believer, and again, some of this is, comes from like working with Larry, both watching in the, the Seinfeld days, we weren't quite as long, but certainly the way we edit Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is just that sort of, you know, ding, 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 and you're taking 
20 seconds out of every scene and all of a sudden that's how you get your minutes. Do you know what I mean? What are the the non-essential, there's two sentences. What if there's one sentence, you know, and it's, it's a much more time consuming process. But again, when I've gone in and looked at like, okay, here's a cut, it's just like, well, wait a second, where'd that story go? And I never want to, I want to get everything in and mush the sausage, which is how you, I think certainly on Veep, on Curb, on Seinfeld, how you get that speed, that density, that sort of, uh, I always liken it to like a, like a Billy Wilder one, two, three, that rat tat tat, which I would argue when you watch some of those shows that I have been involved with compared to other shows, and I'm not saying good or bad, but certainly faster. <laughs> That's amazing. That's great. All right. I want to go way, 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 way back, way, yes. way, 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 back. Way, way, way back. We're going to go back to where you grew up, what your parents were like, sure. brothers and sisters, the socioeconomic background and how it was back then. And your first inspiration to be in this business, what was it? Um, well, I grew up in New York City. I grew up on uh, the Upper West Side, 70th and West End, uh, the middle class. They don't, doesn't exist anymore, but that's, uh, that's what we were. I lived at Lincoln Towers. Lincoln Towers. I was 205, which is on 70th. Yeah. I was 165. 165? When I was born, we 160, lived... 160, I think. Yeah, okay. 160. When I was born, we lived in 185. And then when my sister came along, they moved to 205. My folks are still there. My bedroom... I'm fond of saying is still exactly as it was. It looks like it looks like like an ordinary people where the kid dies in the sailing accident and then the room is like a museum to the dead kid. That's my room right now. <laughs> I can't though, yeah. believe you grew up where yeah. I had the fondest memories. Loved it. Yeah. So I grew up there. You know, um, my mom was uh, she was a sort of a she was a school teacher um, and then was just very active in my school. Uh, I went to a private school in New York called uh, Horace Mann, which. Uh, Biggest claim to fame lately seems to be a lot of molestation cases, but uh, I was not. Uh, and uh, she was very active in the PTA. And oddly enough, when we were all graduated, myself and my, I have a sister who's about a year and a half younger. When we all graduated, my mom ended up working at my old high school, uh, sort of doing the PTA stuff like from the other side. Um, they just couldn't get rid of her. And my dad is a lawyer, you know, he does like trusts and estates and tax stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I guess for me, a lot of the inspiration was um, uh, my mom loves movies. My mom could like go to the movies like 24 hours a day. She used to take me to the movies. Um, when I got a hold of her like record collection from like my grandma's house, that's where I sort of first encountered like Mort Saul albums and uh, like Vaughn Mead's The First Family and that kind of stuff. For and those I, of you who don't know, um, Mort Saul was a Jewish centric <laughs> Mort Saul was comedian. a Jew what <laughs> very Jewish centric kind of comedy always I don't know the other person you mentioned though uh, First Family was a famous like 1960 or 61 parody album of the Kennedy family um and some Tom Lehrer stuff he was like a lot of like funny piano tunes and whatnot but I, like I said uh, you know she like sort of took me to the movies from an early age you know back in the day when there were revival theaters in our neighborhood, there was a one up there on like 66th and Broadway. I can't remember its name. They would do like Hitchcock uh, festivals and stuff like that. And my mom took me. Um, so I was always really interested in like movies and TV. I was always big on comedy and kind of very into like, you know, comedy albums, uh, the Steve Martin albums, the King Tut album. 
Uh, I can remember finding the Woody Allen stand-up comic on tape. And, you know, and I would sort of search these things out back when there were record stores and things in New York City. I remember early trips to London. Um, you, They used to, it was something that only I ever saw in London, which was they would have cassette tapes of some of the really good British comedies. So you could buy like Blackadder on a cassette tape and listen to it before there was that you before you could buy like DVDs or obviously VHSs or whatever. So cassette tapes, things like that. I was very into comedy. I was really into Saturday Night Live. I had uh, from very early on in like 19, I don't know, 77 or so, they published this large green, like a fake script book. It was like script pages with notations on it. And I still have this thing at my folks' place in my museum. Um, uh, so all these things were just really important to me. But I'm also the first to admit... I had no sense or idea that this is anything you could do for a living. You know what I mean? It seemed like elves did it. I was not, for all my reading, for all my, you know, and I would read stuff and whatever, the notion of the writer's life, I guess that was the part I sort of missed. So young me going to Horace Mann, sort of thinking, oh, I'll be a lawyer or something. I guess my great, my great sort of idea was, well, maybe I could be like an entertainment lawyer. You know what I mean? That was like, I thought, I just, it didn't, it didn't, I, I just couldn't process that you were, that people were comedy writers. It didn't exist for me. Um, and, uh, and it really, I guess that sort of changed when I got to college, wow. uh, Harvard, Harvard Lampoon, I joined, which obviously. You got into Harvard. Got into Harvard. I, I was, you know, I was president of the student council and all that kind of stuff and got into Harvard and got there and sort of discovered the Harvard Lampoon and then sort of started to piece together this notion of the Harvard Lampoon giving rise to the National Lampoon and all of that kind of stuff. Started, now, can you tell our audience no, about sure. the Harvard Lampoon? Because a lot of us don't know the inner sure. workings of what the organization is at Harvard and what it's like. And Ostensibly, what it is a humor magazine that obviously is published and it is the, and people, I guess, don't even really know National Lampoon anymore, but it did give rise in the 70s to the National Lampoon, which at the time was a giant phenomena, I guess. Which is yeah. odd because for those of you who don't really follow it, Harvard Lampoon, obviously the smartest writers in the world. National Lampoon, the writing is the lowest common denominator kind well, of movies where there's not, even in the greatest movies of all time they did, it relied on a lot of sight gags and a lot it of sex did, jokes. It definitely did, but they were sort of smart sex jokes, I would argue, uh, to me. Okay, well, yeah. we'll analyze Van Wilder well, later. Well, Van Wilder, but I'm talking, I'm pre, pre I'm talking 70s Harvard Lamp, uh, oh. 70s National Oh, okay. Lamp. Yeah, I, right. no responsibility for the 80s. I'm talking about the original Harvard Lampoon guys like Doug Kenny and Henry Beard, who did the original magazine, the first like four or five years of it. And then did like Animal House and Caddyshack and that stuff. So, and that to me is smart, stupid, I guess. Yeah. You know, it takes a very smart guy to write something so stupid. Do you respect smart, stupid as much as you respect smart, smart? Like yes. in other words, I will take so Arrested the, Development you'll take and you'll also take yes. a show that's just, Smart, stupid, I am fine with. The thing that drives me the craziest in life is just predictability. If I can sit there and say it to you before it happens or tell you what's going to happen before it happens, and obviously there's going to be a little of that, but if you can't, if I, what, what gets me excited is being surprised, like in terms of comedy. And some of that is because it's what I do. So if I feel like if I'm surprised with a great, uh, I was watching... Again, not to talk about Silicon Valley and Alec Berg, 
uh, last night, the other night's episode I was just watching, and it has this very silly runner where the Chinese kid living in the house is making these very stupid crank calls to TJ Miller, just doing the old classic sort of like, you know, is your refrigerator running kind of really bad classic stuff. But it was so stupid. It was funny. And uh, it, it was different for me in a good way. Uh, so yeah, I smart, stupid is fun. I just, I have problems with stupid, stupid. I have problems with shit for shit's sake, I guess. Penises for penises sake, I, I, I guess is what I have my trouble and with. And predictability. So you yes. don't go see any romantic comedy movies, apparently. You know, they're going to get together, but if the journey can be interesting, but I will say, and it is funny. And one of the things that has changed me is I used to love going to the movies. I could go see a good movie and I could go see bad movies. I mean, and it was also a time, I think, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, obviously in like the late 70s and 80s when I was kind of going to the movies with my friends, when there were just more movies, there were new movies every weekend and multiple ones. And you could go see a movie like, uh, what was that? There's, you know, it's like bestseller with James Woods as the hitman and Brian Dennehy as the cop who's a writer, you know, like, like shit like that would come out and that would be a major studio release. You know what I mean? They don't make movies like that anymore. You know what I mean? So there were lots of movies and I loved going and I, uh, among my friends, they still make fun of me for dragging them to like uh, the Rodney Dangerfield movie, Ladybugs, where he <laughs> coaches the girls soccer team, but makes the son of his girlfriend who's great at soccer dress up as a girl. And it's an awful movie, but I loved the act of going. And I will say, unfortunately, Having now been in the industry, whatever I've been in since, I guess, somewhat formally since 92, I, I don't have the patience for it anymore. I don't know if it's a time thing. I don't know if it's a why that movie and not my movie thing, I think, is probably part of it, too. But I, I, don't, I, I still love a good movie, and I will watch bad movies at home while I'm doing stuff. I am... Uh, I, li I watch TV and movies the way people, I guess, listen to music. Like my TV is always on when I'm working. Sometimes it's just sitcoms. I, I, but I, I like the TV on. It helps sort of, I don't know, keep me a little busy in my mind while I'm working. So I will watch things there. But going to a theater to see a bad movie, I guess that gets me angry now. And again, I guess it is ultimately the why not my movie, why this movie thing. So go back to the yeah. Harvard Lampoon. Oh, so Harvard Lampoon. Um, so it is a magazine that you have to, um, uh, I guess, do pieces, write pieces to get accepted in. So it is a student organization. You have to be elected to it. You have to demonstrate a skill either in writing. There's an art board. You can be an artist on the Harvard Lampoon. You can also be a business person. You can sell ads for the magazine. And it has a headquarters right there in Cambridge at Harvard, which is an old mock Flemish castle, which is a pretty cool headquarters that was partially financed by William Randolph Hearst and filled with all these really cool things. And so what's, I guess what was interesting for me getting there was sort of seeing the lampoon, realizing you could be a part of it. And that was when I started to become aware of guys like, you know, as this, like, for example, when the Simpsons started, where it was sort of like, oh my God, all of those guys like Conan and Mike Reese and Gamel and Prost, they were all lampoon guys. And so it was that sort of realization of, oh my God, uh, Jim Downey was a lampoon guy on Saturday Night Live. So all of a sudden the, the, I started to sort of put the pieces together in a way that I, I didn't, hadn't previously about the writer's life, if you will, or that you can be a writer for these things. 
And so I became very obsessed with getting on the Lampoon. And then once I got on the Lampoon, all of a sudden there was this idea that, well, maybe this could be a job, that this is what I was truly, I guess, stupid word, but happy doing and wanted to do. And I think for people that do know the Lampoon, both the good and the, you know, there are definitely, I'm sure people that complain about it, like why, why, you know, what is, why, why would you hire that Lampoon guy? And by the way, I got a bunch of Lampoon guys on my staff. That's, you know, and the reason I will simply say is for me, what I, what I think is great about it is if you're a new writer just out of wherever and you come to work on a show in LA and it's your first job you're going to go through a phase of pitching crappy stuff. You just are. You're going to pitch obvious stuff. You're going to pitch hacky stuff. You're going to just pitch things because why wouldn't you? With The Lampoon, it's almost like a minor leagues, if you will. And you will get a lot of that obvious hacky stuff beaten out of you, whether it's a just a mono a mono of trying to be funnier at a party than that other guy from the lampoon or writing stuff and having people make fun of you for writing it as only it's almost you know it's not a fraternity but in that sort of like there's a certain aggressive comedyness to it of like that's a shitty fucking joke i'm not putting that in the magazine and it does it beats a lot of that stuff out of you and i do think and it's you know it's probably why like people that come out of like you know like like improv stuff like like a lot of improv classes They've had a lot of that stuff kicked out of them. And so I don't think Lampoon is better than any place else, but I think the notion of, I guess, earlier training, if you will, is a very good thing. And I think there is a, there is a house sensibility of sort of the joke no one has thought of that I think does come out of that building in a really good way. And I think you've seen it in a lot of those names we mentioned, um, and so I guess that's what, you know, when I think of what the lamp, why the lampoon is something good, that's the good stuff um, for me. So that was sort of where I sort of both sort of started to get really into it and was writing and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, like I said, it sort of made sense to me where it was like, wow, my folks sent me to Harvard, but I'm not going to classes and this is what I want to do with my life. And then, and this is where people might yell unfair advantage the summer between my junior and senior year, the Lampoon always does these sort of summer projects. And the summer project that year was um, Comedy Central had just been formed. The Comedy Channel and Ha, one owned by Viacom and one owned by Time Warner, were each losing like $10 million a year. And they decided to join forces and create Comedy Central and only lose $5 million each. <laughs> um, and they had decided to do a Harvard Lampoon thing. And we did this special called MTV, Give Me Back My Life. And it was a fake documentary uh, celebrating MTV's 10th anniversary with people pretending to be executives and fake music videos and whatnot. And it's kind of wonderfully awful. And there's just, we, you know, you learn by making so many of these mistakes. But it was an amazing first experience. Um, it was uh, a bunch of us worked on it at first. And then uh, Schaefer and Berg and I went down to New York and slept on my floor. Wait, and, those two guys were with yeah, They you were with a year ahead of me at school. That's where we but met. That's where you met for the first time. Yes, exactly. We all lived in the same dorm. We all lived in Winthrop House and we were all in the Lampoon together. Yeah. And you're still friends. Yes, most of the time. Jeff does the league. 
Jeff Schaefer the does the league. Yep. That's right. Okay. Yep, he does the league. And, um, and Alex doing Silicon Valley. And we did Seinfeld together. We did Curb. We did Eurotrip. We did The Dictator. We did a bunch of stuff together and still do. Yeah. Again, for the thousandth time in this podcast, relationships, everybody. Yeah. I mean, we met early on and uh, just, you know, made each other laugh. And, uh, you know, I, I love doing stuff alone, but I think when the three of us are together and kind of cracking, we really, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, again, I can't speak always for the final movie, but I, I certainly would defend some of our scripts to the, the, the end of the earth. I would, I would, I would argue how good they are. I'm sorry. You know, and I don't, it's, I don't mean to brag. They're good scripts. I don't fucking care. They just are. But yeah, we met all the way back then. So that was and, the oh, first project you did together. Yes. What was your role? Just writers? We were basically sort of the writers and the on-set guys. And there was somebody running the show. There was people running the show and they and those people and it was interesting because they were not great comedy people and if you watch the show now, it's this hilarious thing where it's a documentary most of the documentary footage is done on video when video was not high def yet and everything looks really fake. And then oddly, which, and all of that should have been on film. And then oddly, there's a spring break sequence that's on film for no reason, which should have been on the shitty video. And so there were a lot of problems with it. And yet we, I, we learned so much that summer from the problems. And then going one step beyond that, um, one of the guys who was like a consultant on it was a guy, uh, Billy Kimball, who... Uh, is working on Veep with me right now. And then another consultant for the show was Al Franken. So that's when I first met Al. And Al really became my mentor so that the following year, I guess when I graduated, uh, I got a call from, uh, I can't remember if I got a call from Billy or one of the executives, but Billy was exec producing comedy coverage of the Democratic and Republican conventions with Al as the host. And Jeff and Alec had already moved to LA. They were a year older than me and they kind of went off to LA. And so I was hired, I was graduating and I got hired down there and I basically graduated on a Friday, drove down back to New York and went to work on Monday at Comedy Central with Billy and Al. And, um, and just the next thing I knew, and again, me, the Saturday Night Live fan, and at that point I had devoured like the Hill and Weingard book and all this kind of stuff. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I'm sitting in an office with Al Franken and we're writing sketches together and it was, it was incredible. And 
we became just really great friends. But and you're writing sketches with Al. For this uh, comedy coverage of the Democratic and Republican oh, Convention. It. That was my job because it was like so it was like filling two hours a night so we would do these little ske interstitial sketches he would do things. the interstitials yes. on comedy central exactly exactly so he had left snl no it was his summer gig because snl doesn't work during the summer and so he was the host but al was starting to get into the pol politics and stuff obviously he i don't think he necessarily was thinking of being a senator but i do know probably at that time he wanted to really he would have loved to have hosted uh, weekend update that was what what he was really looking to do and so this was sort of an opportunity to do sort of a news sort of a, a, a comedy news hosting gig outside of snl where i think he was probably also trying to show everybody that he could do it and it was really interesting it was clinton you know it was clinton versus bush and we had to fill time and we were doing all these really fun silly things with a political bent and at the end of the summer, um, you know, it probably one of the, you know, top whatever moments of my life, along with, you know, birth of kids and all that kind of stuff. Al said to me, uh, I want to I want to talk to Lauren and Jim Downey and I want to get you over to SNL. And next thing I knew, I was meeting with Jim Downey. And the next thing I knew, uh, I, I was working at SNL. I was I was still 21 years old. I mean, it was <laughs> madness. I mean, it was it was August of. August of 1992, so I was about two months before my 22nd birthday, and I was working at SNL. <laughs> you got hired without meeting with Lauren? I think I did. I think I met Jim and got hired, yeah, just as a writer, because obviously no no desire to perform or anything like that. And at some point, I did obviously meet Lauren, but yeah. And for those of you who don't know, the minimum wage for a writer on a late night show even 20 years ago was probably between two and $3,000. I feel like it was like close to 3000 i think the the way they used to negotiate it was always uh it was minimum plus 10% to cover the agent you had an agent of 21 yeah i had an agent uh a, a, a guy that we that jeff and alex sort of knew was a guy named chris moore i don't know if you know chris obviously who's gone on to project greenlight yes, and all that kind of, of stuff and chris at the time was an agent at intertalent and so he kind of was sort of like pocket represented doesn't us. exist anymore yeah exactly and then uh and then hooked me up with another like sort of a more formal tv agent at the time named scott arnovitz he's now i believe a packaging agent ah, okay who packages television shows okay i haven't seen him in years um yeah. and uh but that was through chris and then i think internet intertalent eventually joined with icm yeah. and then i see though and then the guys i was with at icm sort of at some point or another, I sort of moved over at ICM to Ari Emanuel, who was my agent, and then they snuck out in the middle of the night and formed Endeavor, and I went with them, so I was one of the original Endeavor clients, and then Endeavor became William Morris Endeavor, whatever. So yeah, so that was sort of my representation path. But agents and managers used to sort of circle the lampoon a little bit, in, a, in I guess a good way, but uh, it was, you know, they were... Every year there were a couple of us going into television. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Were you the youngest person ever to work as a writer on Saturday Night Live? I mean, I think 21 Eddie years old. was like 17 or something. No, so. but he was a performer. Right, but I think he wrote too. I'm no, sure I'm there were other ones. I know like Simon Rich was really young, probably right around the same. But I mean, that's amazing. It was, I, yes, I worked that summer at Comedy Central, but it was really sort of my first real job job, it felt like, out of school. Yeah. So how do you learn how to navigate when everybody you're working with is more experienced than you, is older than you, 
and has more respect in the business than you. How did you navigate well, that and that is, I think, well. the good and the bad of Saturday Night Live. It's kind of like the rocks that the waves hit. And obviously, you told your story before about uh, Jim Brewer, who I only met like once or twice. He was sort of, I left in 95, they cleaned house, and that's when Jim and Will and all those guys came in. So I sort of have a, hi, how are you relationship. But the my cast, my first year was insane. My first year, which was the election year, was still Dana, Phil, Mike Myers. I mean, it was a you know it was like a murderer's row. It was like you were joining the twenty seven Yankees. Sandler was, was there too. Sandler, I believe, my first year either was still a featured player. He wasn't even Sandler yet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It oh, was yeah. like it was right as it was. He that first year I was there, he had already sort of had some hits with Opera Man and stuff, but then really started to you know do a lot more kind of a thing. And Spade was also Spade, there. Farley, Schneider, Kevin Nealon was doing update. update. Yes. Okay. Kevin was doing the update. Um, and, you know, and, you know, your, your gym story, you know, I don't know. I, I'll tell you a story that I'm not sure anyone's ever told. I don't know if he'll be annoyed by it or not, but I'll tell you when we were there, um, vaguely similar thing, which was um, in my, I think it was my third year, Norm got update. And, I, and I'll preface this story with Norm is fucking hilarious. He's crazy, but he's fucking hilarious. I think he's just brilliant. And he's fearless, which I love. I mean, he used to go out there with jokes that the audience either would gasp at or moan at or just not get, and he would stare them down. And I, I, I appreciate that to no end. So I, I, I can't compliment him enough. But in a world where I do believe everyone watching the show assumes that every creator is making up whatever they're saying and that there are no writers. He did an interview somewhere where he more or less said something along the way of like that he wrote all the update jokes. That's basically what he sort of said in an interview. And a lot of us had taken a lot of pride in Norm's update because a lot of the jokes that he was sort of becoming known for, for example, like he used to do a runner of like, uh, that's blankety blank. That's from the latest issue of, duh, of like Duh Magazine. It would be something like that. That's a joke, for example, that Steve Lookner, uh, another good friend of mine, he created that joke. And I don't know, Norm's doing that to this day, that joke, I think. It's a great joke. So we had really taken a lot of pride in Norm's update and working on it. And it pissed the hell out of us when we saw that interview. And we, a lot of us just stopped writing because we are petulant writers. And how do I put this again? Is Which is, as a writer, again, I'm not looking to be famous. Let me start with that. I'm not looking to be on the stage. But I would like to be acknowledged for being the writer. And in a world where, as I said, I think the average human being doesn't even know that writers exist, even if like Norm had said, here is the list of people writing all of Update, it wouldn't have mattered, they still think he was doing it. So in that world, why bother saying it? You know what I'm saying? So one of the things like, for example, I will say this, and again, go to my grave saying it, Jerry Seinfeld used to just like, we'd be at the People's Choice Awards and he'd drag us writers up on stage at the People's Choice Awards. And believe me, I think that's the last thing that the People's Choice Awards people wanted to see. They wanted Jerry, but believe me, they didn't want to see us, you know, 10 or 12 people. But God damn, Jerry was just great about, about that thing. Larry, you know, and again, another, you know, Larry you know, does these interviews and whatever, whatever. And it's always nice. I'll get a call or something and someone will go, Hey, Larry mentioned you on something. And that's not why I do it, but it's just nice that he goes to the trouble of doing it. Do you know what I mean? He doesn't have to, and he does. And I guess 
those are great things. Um, anyway, the Norm Macdonald story, we all did stop sort of writing. And then I remember after I left the show, I would, I sent a joke in once or twice, but I wanted like the hundred dollars that they were paying, uh, (laughs) that they were paying writers. I had a joke that I loved, which was, uh, I think it was the band, it was like better than Ezra had like the number one song. And I sent in a very stupid, smart, stupid joke, I thought, which Norm would kill, which was like this summer, the, you know, it was for like the September show and it was like, blah, 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 number one song, better than Ezra, number two, Ezra. <laughs> um, but I wanted, I wanted the $125 for the joke. I don't think I ever got paid, but anyway, I wanted the money, but, uh, but you know, we were really into that norm thing. And also cause Jim Downey was sort of had taken a real hand in producing the norm segments, which kind of killed him later. But so, you know, and for, you know, and work Jim is uh, for anyone that doesn't know, Jim is just, he's been on the show since the very beginning. I think he's, yeah, never, he's I, mean, I think he got there the second year of the show and I don't want to throw these terms around, but I would, you know, certainly put him in the argument for funniest human being on planet Earth. He's so responsible for so many things you have no idea he's even responsible for. And would just assume be sort of tracing sort of historic genealogy in like the Cooperstown library kind of a thing. But just 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 a brilliant guy, especially with the political stuff. And so I got to do a lot of when I first got to the show. I worked a lot with Al and then with Al and Jim on political stuff, um, which uh was just sort of this amazing thing of like, again, you know, I, those, you know, Al brought me into the show, but I always feel like Jim and Al taught me to write. I've always sort of felt that way. Tell our audience about the first time that Lauren Michaels spent any significant moments talking to you well, and what he <laughs> shared with you that impacted you for your entire career. Well, I'm not sure anything impacted me in the first time. I mean, I got hired there. And as you said, I hadn't met Lauren. And so it was kind of a... Normally, that's the kiss of death because (laughs) you want the guy who wears the ring to bless you. Right. You want him to sort of be responsible for you. Um, And so it was this very weird thing like where I would pass him. And again, I'm a a young writer and this is my be all end all job. But I'm there on a 13 week contract. And I'm walking by Lauren Michaels and he doesn't say a word to me, you know, so it's just like, yeah. Um, I think the first thing he ever said to me was um, on something, um, and we can kind of get back, you were asking me how you navigate, but we should get back to that at some point. And I think it was one of my early sketches. Um, and I, He passed by me at some point and said something to me like, are you having an okay time? But I just, I read so many different things into it. Like, like, am I having an okay time? Or like, is he saying it like, are you having an okay time? Like you entitled asshole or like who I didn't want to hire. You know, you just read so much into it. And I got picked up after my 13 weeks and, you know, I had a nice back end of the season. And I remember being at the party, the end of the year, big party, which they always have outside at the skating rink, which is at that point, not a skating rink anymore. And I remember at like, you know, whatever, somehow like two in the morning, he sort of said something to me along the lines of, see you next year. And I finally relaxed. That was, uh, that was the fun. That was the moment where I kind of exhaled where Lauren said, see you next year. And I had an okay first year. Um, but it was just eggshells as you say. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. 
He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hit men from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels 
just the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.